in your Bible tonight. We are returning to our study in the book of Romans. We are beginning our study of chapter four, chapter four of the book of Romans. As you turn there, consider with me that it is no wonder all the things we have studied so far that Paul said he was not ashamed of the gospel. And surely neither are we if we have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ by grace alone and through faith alone. Paul said that, of course, that he is not ashamed of the gospel way back in chapter 1 when we began our study in the book of Romans. Paul said, and we noted, that these verses in Romans 1, 16 and 17, would really be the focus of the entire book of Romans. They are the central verses. It really is what Romans is all about. But now, as we prepare to begin our study of chapter 4, we can see more clearly, I believe, why Paul was not ashamed. It is truly a glorious gospel. It is truly good news. For sinners like Paul and like you and me, it is the most stunning and incredible news we have ever heard. I trust that you feel the same way tonight if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Beginning in chapter 3 and verse 21, Paul begins to unpack the gospel like a precious and invaluable treasure, showing us from all sides the beauty of what God has done for sinners like us in Christ. He speaks of a righteousness that is now revealed apart from the law and revealed in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he says, though it is apart from the law, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. And it is a righteousness that is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then these central verses of that chapter, chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, he says in verse 23, that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God and all are just and those are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God has put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith God did this to demonstrate his own righteousness or his rightness or justice so that he might be the just one and the one who justifies the sinner who has faith in Jesus. In order that he alone would receive the glory, thereby excluding any boasting on any man's part. For we hold, Paul writes, and we confess together, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And God justifies both the Jew and the Gentile in the same way by faith in Jesus Christ and by faith in him alone. And this faith does not destroy, he told us, or overthrow the law, but rather it upholds the law. It establishes the law as a way of life in the believer. The one who is justified is the one who obeys God and delights to follow his law. What a glorious, glorious gospel indeed. But now the reader may become a little bit suspicious, particularly the Jewish reader, who might be prone to say, well, you know what they say. If it sounds too good to be true, then it probably is. It's just too good to be true. Paul, you got carried away here, didn't you? This can't be what the Bible teaches. We have to have some part in this. 
God must need us to do something. We have to contribute something to our own salvation, don't we? At the very least, he has to make us to be something good in order that he might declare us to be something good. Surely, some in Paul's day would have said, that's what, they, that's what we see when we look at the Old Testament. When we look to our forefathers, we see people who generally obeyed God, who set an example for us of godliness that we should follow them. And because of this, because of their godliness, God blessed them. They were good men, and God saw that, and God blessed them. Not so fast, Paul says, not so fast. And so to prove his case, he says, for my first witness, and in fact, my only witness, I call Abraham to take the stand. And that's what we'll be looking at tonight. He brings Abraham to the forefront, his life, his experience, what he learned, and he sets him before us as an example to prove without a shadow of a doubt that what Paul says is true. And so please stand with me as you hear the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Thus far the reading of God's word, all flesh is indeed like the grass and all our loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, all our loveliness, all our beauty and righteousness is found only in Christ. And so we would look only unto him and seek your blessing now upon the word that you have given to us, that by your spirit it would be received with joy in our hearts and that our lives, because of Christ and because of his spirit, would be transformed by it, we pray that we would be changed because we have met with our God is our prayer, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to move right to the text itself without any further introduction. I think I gave you a sense as we went through the previous introduction that we are where we are tonight, intentionally on Paul's part. He's seeking to prove his case. He's doing it for a reason. He gives us in verses 1 and 2 the premise of why he is moving in this direction. Is it works or is it not works? When you call a witness during a trial, many times the very best witness is the last witness called. The one that will seal the deal or be the linchpin in a carefully well-ordered argument. What Paul does is to bring us just one witness. There's no more necessary. Only one Abraham, 
Now you may say, well, pastor, he's actually bringing two. He's bringing David as well. He's really not bringing David. David is what we would call a corroborating witness, a witness who testifies to everything that Abraham testifies to. And so the focus of chapter 4 is clearly upon Father Abraham. It's all he needs to prove his case that he has made in chapter 3, that a man is justified before God by faith and not by the works of the law. So when commentators look at this, Paul's uh, reasoning here, they ask the question, and it's an obvious one, why does he bring forth Abraham as a witness to testify his life to bear witness to what he wrote? And most commentators, as they deal with that question, suggest at least two reasons, some more, but these are the most important. First, Abraham, of course, is both the ethnic and spiritual father of all the Jews. There's no doubt that Paul has as his main focus in chapter 4 the Jews who would make certain contentions about Abraham and his life and how he was justified before God. And so it's proper for them especially, but for the Gentiles as well, to bring forth Abraham, who again is their spiritual father and their ethnic father as well. Now, it is interesting in verse 1 where Paul says, Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, there are a variety of opinions as to what Paul means when he says, according to the flesh. It could mean according to the works of the flesh. In other words, what did Abraham gain if he worked according to the flesh? The answer, of course, would be nothing. And there are some commentators, many of whom I respect, who take that view and say that that's what Paul has in mind. This is Abraham according to his flesh or the works of his flesh, his own strength. Another view, which I tend to see more clearly uh, in this, is that Paul is just referencing that Abraham is indeed the father of all the Jewish people, of all the Jewish people. He is, according to the flesh, a Jew. And so they look back to him as the progenitor of their race, of their nationality, of their ethnicity, and they look to him as their supreme example. That's why Paul brings him forth. In fact, we know with respect to Abraham and his being a Jew, we know that the Jewish teachers of Paul's day would have argued and did argue in many ways that Abraham was found to be righteous before God because of his works. Just think of his life. You think of Abraham being called by God in Genesis 12 to leave his homeland and to go where God is leading him without any knowledge of what it is that God will ask of him. He simply obeys. You think of Abraham believing and trusting God to do whatever God says, take your son, your only son Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice. And so the Jewish teacher said, surely Abraham had a right standing before God because he was at every point obedient to God and so he was justified by God or before God by his works, his works of obedience. And so that was the context in which Paul now is writing this. And so when he says this question and he makes this appeal or this premise, was it works or not? 
he will clearly, we know, be arguing that it wasn't and had nothing to do with works. And that's really what he means in verse 2, because he says it outright, if Abraham was justified by works, something that would absolutely contradict everything Paul has just said in chapter 3, he then has something to boast about, but not before God. He has something to boast about, let him boast, but not before God, because I've already shown that justification and the way in which God justifies the sinner, the ungodly, is by his grace alone so that no man may boast before his presence. And so he may have something to boast if it's by works, but not before God. That's the premise, the the sort of setup for the argument that he's going to make beginning in verse 3. And so here is the argument. And the argument shows in verse 3 through verse 5 that it is clearly a picture of justification by grace alone and through by the means of faith alone. And so the argument is by faith. Note how immediately Paul begins his argument, and it is most important. He asks a question in verse 3. For what does the scripture say? What does God's word say? What is God's own testimony about these things? Everything for Paul hinges on the Bible and the revelation of God in his word. And so you think of Abraham, and he quotes one single verse from his life. And you heard the verse tonight from Genesis chapter 15. It is the account of Abraham entering into a covenant with God, God with him. In Genesis 15, we didn't read the whole picture, the whole thing, but you know the rest of the story, how God cut the animals in half and how he set them up on one side uh, and the other of, a, of a, a sort of a trench, and the blood would be in the center of that trench, and then God himself in the form of a fiery pot would come through that and declare his covenant with Abram. Now, in the context of chapter 15, where this verse from the scriptures is quoted, we have to remember the previous chapters, beginning in chapter 12. We know in chapter 12 that God came to Abram called him from his own country and made a promise to him. And this was the promise. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Now, Abraham understood that very clearly when God made the promise. It would be through Abraham and through his seed that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so Abram clearly at that point in his life is anticipating that God will grant to him and to Sarah, his wife, a child through whom these promises would be fulfilled. By the time we get to chapter 15, There's a significant problem, and several years have passed. Abraham, in chapter 15, begins by questioning God. Was everything you promised me, he says, true? I don't have a son yet. All I have is Eliezer, my servant. And you remember in that context, the verses read what God said to him. He brought him outside into the night and said, look toward heaven 
and number the stars, an impossible task, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring from your own loins, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. Now, if you look at our text, that's the verse that is quoted. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, you only need to look at the whole of chapter 4, which deals with the life of Abraham, to see how important this word that he uses is, that it was counted to him. You see it in that verse. You see it later. And I probably won't get all of these right. In verse 5, you see counts in verse 6. You see count in verse 8. You see counted in verse 10. You see in verse 11, counted them to, to them as well. And then you look a little further in chapter 4 in verses 22, 23, and 24, and you see counted again. It is clear that this word is central to Paul's understanding, to the Lord's understanding of how it is that a person comes to have a right standing before God. It is a matter of counting one to be righteous before God. Now we know in the study of both, and commentators I think are right, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, this word that is used, whether in the Greek or Hebrew, is from the world of accounting. The world that talks about ledgers and uh, assets and losses, profits and losses, etc. And, and the view here is, or the understanding here is, that God looked at Abraham and because he simply believed God's promises. Keep in mind, we've talked about this already, that faith and that belief being itself a gift of God and only the means by which we receive the promises of God, because Abram exercised that gift of faith given to him by God and received those promises, God is said to account to Abraham or to give to him in his side of the ledger a righteousness that is outside of him and not his. It's not something he earned. It's not something that was to his credit because of his works. It was by the grace of God that it was given to Abram. It was counted to him as righteousness. The, it clearly refers to faith, but not as a meritorious work, but as the gift of God being exercised to receive what God himself has done, ultimately pointing to the work of Jesus Christ. In this case, Paul argues very clearly that this righteousness was placed in Abraham's account, not by a right behavior on his part, but simply by the grace of God giving to him a righteousness that was alien and outside of him. He believed God. And in that act of believing, it was credited to him. God graciously gave to him that righteousness. Faith not here again being a work, but simply the means by which the promise of God was received. Now, if you read the rest of the story in Genesis 15, God actually makes it abundantly clear that it has nothing to do at all with Abram. 
You remember the rest of the story as those animals are cut, as the blood flows down the trench in between the cut animals, and as the pot, which is a fiery burning pot, passes through the the, the cut animals, God himself saying, let this happen to me if I do not fulfill my promise. You remember where Abram is. He's sleeping. He's completely out. He has no part in this at all. It is all of God, all of his grace, so that the Lord, even in the picture shown there as he confirms the covenant, is telling us that it is not by Abram's works but merely the grace of God, crediting, granting to him, counting to him the righteousness which is outside of himself, not belonging to him by right, but pointing ultimately to the righteousness which is in Jesus Christ. Because all people, whether before Christ or afterwards, are saved in the same exact way by the crediting of that righteousness and by the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. And so that's the clear argument and the, really the foundational argument in verse 4 that we see here, or verse 3 that we see. He adds to that then in verse 4 an illustration. It's really all one argument, but now he adds an illustration from everyday life that he will build upon in verse 5. Verse 4 has an illustration that is very much something we all understand. When a man works, he receives wages for his work. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. He gets what he deserves. And so when a man or a woman goes to work and they work a full week, they get a full week's pay directly related to the work that they did. This is a simple, direct illustration. If you work, you get your due. It's exactly what we would expect. You earned it. The wages are not counted as the generosity of the employer. They're not counted as a special gift given to the worker. He gives him exactly what was agreed upon in the contract. He works, he earns his money, those are wages. Now Paul will use this very same idea in chapter 6 when he talks about the wages of our sin being what we deserve, which is death. The same picture, the same illustration, very helpful. But Paul uses this to set up what he says in verse 5. When he builds upon the argument and he says it's just the opposite, if you will. You're not getting what you deserve when we talk about justification. Because it's not about your working and earning anything. And so he uses this language. And it's important to see Paul is, again, sort of mixing up his, the ways in which he uses work here in verse 4 and verse 5. And now he says to the one who does not work. Now, he doesn't mean working at a job. Who does not work in the way that we've been talking about works. Who does not earn his salvation by working and earning it in that way. The one who does not work, he has Abram in mind, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The one who doesn't work, doesn't earn salvation by works, is the one who simply believes God, that he alone is able to justify the ungodly. 
Now it is by faith that he receives again this righteousness, not earned, but a gift. And this is the doctrine that we refer to as justification. It is the justification, the making right of the ungodly. Now that's important for us to understand. God never arbitrarily excuses or acquits the wicked. In Exodus chapter 23, and there are other places you can think of, the Lord says, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will never acquit the wicked. The Lord doesn't just on a whim acquit the wicked. He would not be just to do so. And yet Paul says very clearly that God now is able to justify the ungodly, the undeserving. How? It is through everything that Paul has taught us in chapter 3. It is everything that he spoke of. If you look back to chapter 3, you look at verse 26. It was to show his righteousness or his rightness or justice at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is just in this case of justification. He is just to uh, justify the ungodly because the sins of the ungodly are paid for through another, through Jesus Christ. The burden of our sins and the wrath that we deserve are placed on Jesus. You remember the great exchange and the righteousness of Jesus, which he earned by his perfect obedience to the law, is credited, counted to us. That's the only way he's able to do what he does in justification. And so you have this wonderful, and I would commend this to you wholeheartedly as something to memorize even as you engage with others about this great, most important doctrine. In chapter 11 of our confession, those whom God effectually calls he also freely justifies, not by infusing righteousness into them. Why did they say that? Because that's the Roman Catholic view. The Roman Catholic view is God cannot declare the ungodly person to be righteous. He must first make him righteous, and then he can declare him to be. He has to infuse something into them. And our forefathers rightly understood the scriptures when they said not by infusing righteousness into them but simply by pardoning their sins and by counting and accepting their persons as righteous not for anything wrought in them or done by them but for Christ's sake alone nor by imputing or counting faith itself the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness. It's not faith that becomes the righteousness. Faith is merely the means by which we receive it. But, he says, or they say, by imputing and counting the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is a gift or the gift of God. It is God's gift. And it was true of Abram, of Abraham, the father of the faithful, as we'll see next week. Well, there's one other section that remains. You know what it is in verses 6 through 8. 
It is the corroborating testimony of David. Paul calls David to speak to this issue. And when he does, he quotes him from Psalm 32, the verses we began our service with. To be sure, the introduction of David here is not another witness called to the stand. He is simply a corroborating voice speaking to what he has just written about Abraham. He is adding another voice to prove that what Abraham knew, what Abraham understood, what Abraham experienced is exactly what David experienced. But you will see it is from an opposite or really completely different perspective. It's not the same sort of picture, is it? Because David here is talking about the blessings that we receive from God, the blessing especially of the forgiveness of our sins. Well, what does that have to do with everything? Well, it has everything to do with justification. Remember, there are two aspects of justification, two sides. Our sins forgiven for the sake of Christ and because of Christ and what he did to pay for them. And righteousness given and received by us through faith placed into our account. David is focusing in this psalm, Psalm 32, on the blessings of the one, as Paul says, whom God counts righteousness apart from works. The blessings that David speaks of are the benefits of our salvation that are freely given to us apart from works. David did nothing to earn the forgiveness of his sins. David did nothing to earn the fact that God, notice verse 8, will not count his sin against him. There was nothing that David did or anyone can do to earn that blessing and favor from God. So Paul calls the voice of David to corroborate the voice of Abraham and the experience of Abraham and to say neither of these men, no matter how viewed they are in the Jewish world, did anything by their works to earn this salvation or this blessing or this justification. They did nothing it was all the grace of God and the grace of God alone. So that it is God who justifies the ungodly. It is God who counts to the one who believes the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it is God who freely blesses those whom he chooses and counts not their sin against them. That is the blessing of justification. And the joy that Paul is talking about as he speaks about this great salvation that he began the whole epistle in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. That's why he's not ashamed of it, because it's all of God and none of ourselves. Well, the rest of this chapter continues with the life of Abraham. We're not done with Abraham. There aren't as many hymns in our hymnal, unfortunately, to sing about Abraham. But we're still going to sing of this glorious salvation and justification, which Paul now has undeniably proven is all of grace through faith and not of works. That's his whole point. He doesn't have to go further. He will. He will make his argument and continue to go forward because he's going to continue to use that word, right? Counted, 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 credited, uh, counted to his 
to his record, all of this that Paul talks about here, all relates to the same idea. He's proving his point beyond a shadow of a doubt. So two things as we close and as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. And I want to repeat the one from last week. There's no boasting, is there? There's nothing we can boast in at all. There's no room for boasting before the throne of God's grace. It is a throne of his grace. And before that throne of grace, all glory and honor and blessing belong to him. That's what Abraham is doing. That's what David is doing before God's throne of grace. They knew, they understood, they did nothing to earn what God had so freely given to them and which they, by the faith that God had granted to them, received and believed the promises of God. And so there is no room for boasting for any one of us. There is no place for our works in our justification, in our gaining a right standing before God. There is nothing for Abraham. There's no boasting for David. There is no boasting for Ted. There is no boasting for TJ, for Elizabeth, for Holly, for Cynthia. And I could go on. Do you want me to? Everyone in this room, everyone beyond this room, everyone in the world, there is no boasting. There is only the blessing of God because of what he has done for us in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer tonight... But if you are not, the warning stands. You are still in your sin, and you will stand before God to give an account of your sin, and you will not be able to stand. And so the encouragement, as always, is to flee to Christ, who is the righteousness of his people, and the clothing and the dress that we wear before the presence of a holy God. We must be found in the righteousness of Christ, and we will boast, as we said last week, but only in the cross of Christ and nothing else. And the second point, very quickly, there could be other things, and I'm sure the Lord will bless to your own lives the other applications of this, but the one that stands out to me is how Paul made his argument. It is so important for the days in which we live you remember how he began in verse 3? What does the scripture say? Our confession says, for all controversies of faith, for all controversies, we go to the scriptures to hear from God. The scriptures are the very word of God. And when Paul, in dealing with what the reformers called the fundamental, most important doctrine of our faith, Luther said the whole of the church hinges on this, turns on this, the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If his answer to determine what is true is to say, what do the scriptures say? And how much more do we go to the scriptures for every controversy we face today? How the church has so greatly wandered from this principle when instead of going to the scriptures, they go to their own experience, to their own feelings, to their own guesses, to their own understanding, to whatever else they go to beyond the scriptures themselves. For you and me, as we live in this world, especially as the world in which we live, where the word of God is being distorted and all sorts of things are happening, this must be our cry. What do the scriptures say? 
What do they tell us? What does God tell us? And of course, if your mind goes where mine does, you think of Acts 17 and the noble Bereans. And we we use them as example all the time, and it's because it's a great example. Paul, you remember, in his travels, goes to Thessalonica. He leaves there. He goes to Berea. And as he does, we read these words that Luke writes, Now these Jews in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, with joy, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Don't trust anyone. Listen to your pastors, yes, your elders, but test everything by the word of God, by what the scriptures say. That's what we would want you to do. And so many churches have been led astray by blindly following leaders and giving all of their trust and confidence in men without examining the scriptures. And so follow Paul's example. It's a great example. What do the scriptures say? Let that be your question as you face any decision, any conflict, any controversy. What do the scriptures say? What does God say to us? Let us pray. Father, may we be a people of the scriptures, those who follow your word, who seek to understand and to know, and that by your spirit we are confident you will lead us into all truth and understanding if we so submit ourselves to you. And we thank you, Father, for the wonderful and glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, of which we have just begun to touch on in these sermons. May you continue to bless us and remind us of all that is ours in Jesus, even now as we come to this table, a table of your grace, a table of the gifts of the salvation which you have wrought for us in Jesus. May we come with joyful, receptive hearts to receive all that you have purposed for us. We pray this with great thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.